Welcome to the first episode of Breaking the Lathe. My name is Claire, and I'm here talking with Sean KB from the Antifada. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. Today, I guess we're going to be talking about commodification and what impact that has on broader culture, because I think commodification has this tendency to be a word that gets thrown around without it really being clear what's being referred to in a lot of like these different contexts. Because it's a word that seems to have a couple of like similar but different meanings. There's first the traditional Marxist idea of commodification, which is a process through which goods and the like are transformed into commodities. But there also seems to be the second definition, which is a bit broader, right? Yeah, I think there's two, I mean, at least two fundamental meanings to commodification. As you said, there's the Marxist one, the one I tend towards, of course, which is, as you said, a process. And as we know from capital, the commodity is that elementary form that uh, Marx focuses on in the in the beginning in order to try to understand this dynamic logic of capital. You have that process of commodity production and commodification on the one hand. And then I think in the more like layman's, layperson's term, it's more like um, things being marketized or like um, things becoming trashy or things becoming um, small D democratic or there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of value judgment to the second definition, I think. Yeah, it's that second definition that I kind of want to work with, because I do think that it has a kind of connection to that first Marxist conception of commodification, which the theorist Frederick Jameson outlines as a theory of postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism. And he first lays it out as a number of features that all kind of point to this process of commodification. So like the first of these features of culture and the cultural products within postmodernism is a kind of depthlessness or flatness that basically in order to become a more universally potent commodity, they're stripped of person or like they're stripped of the kind of ties which ground it to a specific cultural milieu right like to become a more universal commodity right the the universality of them and their lack of depth and their lack of history and their lack of really any deeper cultural meaning means that they're saleable they're marketable all over the place and they can you know do they can do a lot of things for a lot of people yeah, exactly. It's kind of through that process that they become something of like a simulacra of what they're originally trying to represent without having the kind of depth to actually be the real thing. And he describes this as having this broader impact of diminishing the affect of these products of culture, which is why you get a lot of what feels like basically just this twee bullshit, right? You know, where like, if if like, you know, you watch like, I don't know, like the Marvel hmm. Cinematic Universe is yeah. kind of a great example of this. <laughs> Uh, where it's just, you know, you've got all these things where none of these characters really feel like fleshed out characters, but instead, and this is actually kind of a good segue into the next feature, which is that instead there's kind of this replacement of depth with intertextuality. So like they're constantly pointing at other commodities to create this sort of facade of depth hmm. within cultural production. So so this is when you see a um, a commercial that's referencing a movie, which is referencing a real life event that arose because whoever was doing the real world events saw a movie this this sort of like um this chain of like cultural causality where there's all these references to things you see these references all the time but whatever the core was of of what that was is uh is eliminated and it merely becomes like a um a semiotic sort of drift so if i could uh for one second let's backtrack so we've talked about this uh frederick jameson and postmodernism in terms of the production of commodities themselves, right, moving into late capitalism. Then we've talked about them in terms of the 
the um, the affect of those commodities, what they do when people purchase or consume them. But then we're also going one step farther, and and what is the meaning? But the meaning people ascribe to the things that they're producing. So it's a it's a com it's a complex thing because he's I think he's you're telling you're telling me he's trying to argue some causality between those, right? Yeah. So this is kind of a big part of what I want to talk about because I do think that there is a causality there, and Jameson certainly seems to be pointing to it, but I'm not sure that he like I don't feel like he gets to that core particularly succinctly. Well, I could, I mean, we could get to that core. I could at some point tell you what my, my take on it is and just try to, try to teach Frederick Jameson something. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, I don't want to state too strong of a case here, but, and I don't think this is in contradiction with what Frederick Jameson is saying. The, the way that I've always understood uh, this question, right, this question of um, commodification and also the kind of form of appearance that different commodities and cultural artifacts take in different eras uh, of capital. Because I think that it's certainly, it, it makes sense to periodize capitalism into a Fordist period and then into a, um, a post, a late capitalist period, if you want to call it, or post-Fordist or neoliberal period. I think there are definitely changes that happened in the 1970s and 1980s that show a shift in the way that things are produced, the sh a shift in social relations between people uh and certainly in terms of the political arrangement of the world so with all that being said i think um it makes sense to go back to capital volume one uh chapter one yeah <laughs> chapters one two and three and uh think about the concept of fetishization and alienation such as it is because if we can state that Capitalism has a forward-moving developmental dynamic, right? Which is kind of the whole point of understanding capitalism. It's like, it's logic and what it's moving towards. Then I think that we can look at in terms of the commodity in society, again, this building block of the market, the building block of capitalist society, is, uh, is a process. It's a process of production. But it also, essentially, over time... Um, more and more of the aspects of human life that had been outside of the market have become marketized, right? So you see that, say, compared to the 1960s to today, so much of uh, the kind of social reproduction like cooking and cleaning uh, and, and eating that would have gone on in the, in the home now happens out in the market. You know, it's no longer like the, the social reproductive single uh, single family unit you know, with like a, a man going out to work and a woman. I mean, this is all stereotypical, of course, but a housewife staying at home. Instead, now you have both um, both partners working and a lot of the kind of um, production that used to happen in the house now happens outside of that. So there's alongside all the rest of this, there is a real deepening of what we can call the commodity form into more and more aspects of human life. And one of those aspects, I think that's a big one, is culture. Yeah, exactly. Right, and the, and the production and the ownership of culture, which is to say art, which is to say media, right? This is now deeply imbued with the capitalist logic, right? In a way that maybe it wasn't 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Like, because we're all kind of inculcated within this system where we're essentially replicating the commodity form within all of our cultural production. And this in and of itself has had this kind of effect on our brain where even if not consciously we're constantly reproducing this commodity form and it's basically at this point where it's our only way of sort of approaching interpersonal connections or different cultural products or ideas so basically like, yeah. when we're confronted with something we approach it as something with this kind of commodity form like 
I think this whole force the vote thing, which I think is this perfect example of this total, like, this ridiculous thing, which is really frustrating because I understand why people want to do it, but also it's become this thing where everyone's all up in arms over this very minute and wonkish disagreement over strategy when there's not even, like, an actual vehicle to facilitate or affect any kind of actual planned strategy. Like, it's like having the right idea is enough or having the right commodity is enough right so it's like it's putting the cart before the horse yeah and now and now you're talking about um the way in which like politics is experienced today in late 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 capitalism and how people understand themselves as political actors right they carving out a, a car, carving out a brand for themselves this is why i think you get the 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 word grift thrown around so much is because so much of culture and politics used to be created uh, collectively, or at least it used to be socialized. It used to be people working together in an office and making media. But now, because of the developmental process of production under capitalism, everybody is now their own individual unit. They're all rising and grinding, and they all have to come up with their brand and their grift. And it's not to blame people, but I think it goes to show that there's this atomization of cultural production now and it has a huge effect on how people enter enter the political world yeah there is definitely that tendency to think that people are grifting but i think that it's because of this algorithmic mechanism of this process of commodification that occurs because there's no like even if we're trying to break out of that process we don't really have any kind of language or anything with which we could do that even if we wanted to because it's like it's the air that we breathe right it's the water that we swim in people when when people throw the term grift around or they're talking about like i don't know people being posers and shit and just and just out there for like their brand and clout or whatever that's because every that's everybody nowadays there's no longer some like mass that's all there is there's no longer some like except for like the new york times and the washington post like vanishingly vanishingly few people work in like mainstream media anymore where everyone's just an individual actor everyone has to grift everybody has to grind if you're going to be in that world because there's no other world out there and people make this moral judgment about it as though like grifters are you know just ripping people off and that they're in insincere right is the charge always and just opportunistic but there's really no other way to do politics nowadays in the united states for all the reasons that we've been talking about yeah, because the thing is, like, you'd essentially need to somehow now decouple the idea of politics from the commodity form, and, like, I just don't see that happening. I, I guess, like, kind of the closest thing we got to that was, like, with, like, the Bernie movement, right? Because essentially you had all these people who were, you know, kind of atomized in their own individual ways, but they were still willing to have, you know, a broader faith within this kind of structure of, you know, supporting Bernie Sanders. So some of those wonkish, like, disagreements fell away, and, like, I think that's kind of part of the trouble that we're at now for breaking back outside of that is essentially we need to find some kind of structure wherein these petty disagreements i guess if you want to even call it that they fall away because that's without that essentially you're just going to have like the situation where you've got you know commodity a and commodity b and you've got kind of the audience for these commodities and like they're just kind of choosing between these two but there's no real reconciliation between them yeah i mean it gets more complicated when you get into political action right because um politics because there's a certain logic that happens in the market Right. And that's the, the logic of like atomized particles bumping up against each other 
um, operating by a law of motion, but one that's kind of invisible to everybody and, and everything. That's the economy, quote unquote, on the one hand. And politics is, we were talking, I think, before with the commodification of it, we were talking about more um, political thought, political action, writing, journalism, and uh, and ideas. But when you get to the realm of politics, it's all about collective action, right? The Bernie Sanders campaign brought these 10 millions of people, tens of millions of people together because that's what politics does. But it binds the people around uh, a real collectivity, something that really has an effect on the world, but a collectivity that has a much different logic from the logic of the commodity. That said, I think that when you see you know, the branding that happens with politicians and the branding that happens with movements, there's an overlap there. But political power is about centralizing power, whereas commodity production is about a diffuse but like ultimately powerful system that surrounds everybody. Yeah, but I think the problem comes in where because of this cultural ubiquity of commodification, I think that people assume politics should work like commodities. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's certainly true. Like, you've got all these people who think that essentially because, well, I supported AOC or whatever, that she must fit into this particular idea of what they thought that she must be like. And the moment that she's not that, all of a sudden the conception of her as a political agent or this political commodity within the mind of someone, like, that all of a sudden falls away and you're just like, well, I, like, I didn't expect this to be this or this isn't what I thought it was, so I don't want it anymore. And, like, that's not... Yeah. Like, I think this happens a lot with people talking about unions, too. You get a lot of people who are like, oh, well, this union is doing X, Y, or Z, and I don't support that, so I don't support this union. And, like, that's not how these structures of power work. You're approaching these structures of power with a very commodified mindset of how you think they should work. But that's not the way they actually function. Like, these unions are there to represent the interests of their workers, and... There are often even conflicts within the unions, like the workers and the union bosses don't necessarily see eye to eye. No, that's a that's a really good point. That's um, like the way that um, a lot of people I know this as a union member, the way that a lot of uh, union members think about their union is like as a service that they pay into and they're supposed to get something back from it, not like a collective unit of social power, but something that's like essentially like. Um, like ordering a maid service or something like that. You give them the money, they do these things for you, transaction over. And politics are very similar, and you see this on the on the left too. And it's not to say that there shouldn't be people on Twitter, you know, freaking out and yelling at Biden and his people for not getting their $2,000. It is true that they promised that, but it's a very transactional conception of politics that people have, right? This commodified vision of politics where like, you want something, you send a politician to do it, and then they're expected to merely fulfill that end of the bargain. Instead of, of course, and this is really uh, visual with Biden, instead of a politician having a certain social political vision, you know, in order to bring us collectively to that point, it seems like it's merely a series of transactions that we ask of AOC or Biden or whatever the case may exactly. be. Exactly. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm supporting Biden. I didn't even vote for the guy, but like, The idea that I think a lot of people had with Biden was that because we put him in there, he'll become what we want him to become. And like, like, I think you could even make people worse than Biden do what you want them to do if you have like actual political power and organization behind you. But I think it's important to understand that these politicians don't have the transactional relationship with the voter that a lot of people seem to think they have. Right, right, right. 
And then people are disappointed when they're, you know, like I, in good faith, I went and I put my vote in and I'm supposed to get this back, you know, and when it doesn't happen, people are shocked by it. But because that's, again, looking at the political process from, as a commodity, like as something that you consume and you, and you get back. Whereas instead, politics, as we know, is all about uh, collective action, state action, uh, ultimately the use of violence. Um, it's, it's a very strange relationship we have with politicians and the state that we expect a transaction there. Yeah, and I guess that gets to the problem of like, how do you get people to stop focusing on this idea of, oh, well, we just need to make these politicians transactionally behave according to our wishes because we provided them the... Uh, you know, are into that transaction, and now we just want them to fulfill that. Right. I don't know. I feel like there's just this, like, crisis in faith of people not necessarily knowing what to do. And if there even is something that could be done, there's no buy into them. I think the closest we got to that was supporting Bernie Sanders, and clearly that's no longer really a thing. Like, I don't think anyone's expecting him to run again. No, and, and that's because Bernie... When you were voting for Bernie or you were canvassing for Bernie, there was some sort of vague conception of democratic socialism that you wanted. And it was more than the Medicare for all. It was more than free college. It was more than debt forgiveness. It was, <clears throat> say what you want about it, democratic socialism. It was a bit of a holistic vision. Uh, I suppose the Democrats have that as well, although it's very, very unclear to me uh, what what people are actually like supposed to believe that, that they're going to do. But... You know, there, there's the bourgeois economy and then there's the bourgeois state. And when you're in the economy, you're either a worker or a consumer. Uh, when you're in politics, you become a citizen. And the point of voting and the point of citizenship is, is, is for everybody to be this atomized individual who puts up, you know, one, 100, 150 millionth of the vote out there. You tally it up and then the majority wins. Even like the way that bourgeois politics works is extremely alienating because it's saying like, okay, I'm going to send this representative to do something for me. Once I cast my vote with them, I don't have any, any leverage over them for the next two to four to six years. So this isn't something I think we can blame people for having a, a transactional sort of commodified vision of politics. I think it's, again, just the, the air that we breathe. That's the world that we grew up in. That's where that's what politics actually is. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think it's important not to ascribe a moral dimension to a lot of these things, because, yeah, it is the air. It is essentially what we've been inculcated with. And it's just sort of how we understand these things to work and how we reproduce these things to work. And I guess that's sort of part of the problem. It's uh, It's sniff ideology, right? Yeah, That's what we exactly. need our Zizek for. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I guess where I have a problem is how do we even begin to get through to people so that we at least try to reconcile with one another rather than interacting as these kind of atomized commodities? Because within this sort of structure where this is how we're interacting, I just don't really see any kind of structure by which there can be any kind of coming together like the closest thing now that Bernie as like this grander idea or concept is gone, it would be the Democrats. But like you said, yes, they do have sort of a holistic vision, but it's kind of also vague nonsense. <clears throat> the vision is that they offer people, they offer voters is be a Democrat and you will be a good person. 
You will be moral. You will care for the poor. You'll care for the immigrant. You know, you'll be part of this like moral progressive crusade in order to make America a more perfect place. So when people say legitimately, like I'm a Democrat, um, like that's who I am, they're affiliating themselves with, with a social vision, but it's not one based on uh, even transactional goals. It's one based on like a kind of moral economy. That, the polit that politics takes on in this country, where on both sides, Republican and Democrat, uh, this sort of vision of the party is one that's only inclusive to the extent that it, it doesn't do anything, right? It's, a, it's basically like um, be part of the good guy team, and that's what we offer you. And that's why you get so much pushback online when you kind of try to puncture that bubble of Biden or the Democrats, or if you go into a conservative thread and you try to like critique shit people push back because it's literally their identity they've they've begun to identify themselves as these groups uh and they might disagree on a lot within it but it's fundamentally identitarian politics yeah well and like the thing is i would say that that is still kind of a form of like transactional politics right because like it is still like you are a democrat therefore you have like earned the right to be a good person or whatever or you right. are a republican so you are you you have like essentially set yourself up as like not a member of like the deep state pedophile cabal or whatever <laughs> you believe in freedom and liberty yeah exactly it's like you believe in yeah f freedom liberty you believe in you know the sanctity of human life or whatever it is that they say that they believe in but like it's all like this very like transaction like it's this kind of transactional relationship they have with like their own identity right yeah i mean actually now that i'm thinking about it we you and i together um kind of gave two sort of like logics behind politics the one is like the bourgeois transactional one and then the other one was the sort of metaphysical identitarian one and both of those are in conflict with another, right? If you believe both both those things, that then they're in contradiction with each other, right? It can't be transactional on the one hand and be about feelings on the other and identity, except that it is. And the reason why people get so frustrated with politics is that <clears throat> that contradiction is real because there's nothing actually that Democrats or Republicans can do to fundamentally change things except to make people feel better about being on the good team. I'm saying it doesn't even there isn't even much in American mainstream political life anymore to be transactional about. You're talking about shit around the edges, you know? Yeah, essentially where we're at now, both parties have abdicated any sort of conception of wielding or imposing power. They've entirely abdicated that over toward finance, capital and the like. That's why you've got this whole COVID vaccine rollout, which has been an absolute disaster because there's no logistical capacity within the government to just do a national project at this point. Right. It's all been completely gutted and sold out to these public-private partnerships. Right. So essentially, you've got these people fighting on the margins over these minuscule... Well, I guess they become big in the sense that these are the only things which exist to be fought over among these political positions, which are considered to be sacrosanct. But because we have our own very commodified ideas of these little positions on the margins, it becomes kind of this calvinist insistence on our own being correct like mm -hmm. we are justified through our faith in what we believe mm -hmm. alone and so my commodity is the good one and the other one is the bad mm -hmm. one and like this is a tendency replicated throughout market logic yeah i mean um we're we're pretty far afield from the realm of production here but i do think that 
there is a um there is something to this you can call it postmodern if we're still in postmodernity i don't know this um this lack of meaning that's arise that's arisen in american and western and global life i guess nowadays uh where essentially like futurism seems to be dead uh positive visions for it uh seem to be lacking right now um certainly big collective projects like you said um america can't even get their shit together to vaccinate people or save 600,000 people from a plague i mean i think that there there is a deep connection in all of this and i think that this is like this is a, a result of the ultimate process of production which is always to create not just inequality but also alienation among people not just workers but everybody you know from the actual creative function in this world and then any meaning that we could collectively create together because there isn't much of a collective right now there's the democrat and the republican we talked about that uh there's also the american right i guess you could say we're all americans we're all in this together right but <clears throat> what does it even fundamentally mean you know what does that mean for a vision of the future <clears throat> that's meaningful right now in a time of economic political and environmental crisis i don't know well, I mean, there's also the collective identity of the consumer, right? Which is one of the ones that I think the populace actually attempts mm. to build the most frequently. Because, I mean, how often is it that there's this company that like, oh, I don't like this company. I'm going to boycott this. I'm not going to buy their stuff. Mm. But it's just a very kind of impotent political class because it has no real relation to production. I mean, it's just you and a couple of friends deciding that your position as a consumer is sufficient to be wielded as a stake in politics, but like, that's not how this works. You as a consumer are such a small thing on the scale of capital that it doesn't even really register. Yeah, but I agree. But at the same time, being your, your role, our roles as consumers are absolutely fundamental, not just to the American economy, but to the world economy, right? Like there was, there was a way that in this postmodern or neoliberal era, you know, a great bargain was made with the American workers and the American people, which is that like the good jobs are going to go bye bye, but we're going to open up credit lines so everybody can <laughs> can borrow money to their gills. Uh, and then, you know, any satisfaction you may have gotten out of a career 50, 60 years ago and like being part of, a, say, a union, which is like a collective solidaristic enterprise is going to be replaced by individual or family consumption. So you're right that the, the consumer in America is, is deeply politicized because that's essentially the one role that we have left. You know, we're supposed to vote every every few years or whatever. But really, your day to day role, your 24 seven role is to be a consumer of commodities. Well, yeah, I think the term I heard from Matt Crispin was that in the Imperial core, we are all the consumer of last resort. Right. Which I feel is very deeply and fundamentally true, but the thing is we then attempt to try to ascribe this kind of political valence onto the identity of consumer when oh, it's yeah. such a fundamentally <laughs> alienated thing that like you cannot organize around the identity as a consumer. But even within politics, you see all these people trying to organize along these relations with one another as consumers, and I just don't see that as having any real political impact. When was the last time there was a really successful mass boycott campaign? I, I can't even think of one. Nestle? Nestle's still around. Um, Exxon was doing that shit in Nigeria. They're still around. I guess even the ones I can kind of think of in history that were kind of successful, they were all within these small regional areas. Right. Where right. you maybe get this company out of this region or shut it down before it's a big international thing. Right. But the moment it transcends national boundaries, I don't think, hell, I'd go so far as to say even once you break past smaller regional boundaries like 
Yeah. Outside of a couple cities, you're not really going to have any impact on that one way or another. Because you've left the, the community at that point, and you're in the realm of, like, floating signifiers where, you know, like, um, you don't even realize you have anything in common with people a few cities away. And you don't even hear from them ever, because there's not like there's, like, a democratic media. So how could you ever even find out about it? And even in those instances where I can think of them working, I guess because it is regional and within a community, I think that it's not necessarily people organizing around the identity as a consumer. Like, it's organizing around other principles. It's organizing around the community. And I don't see how, I mean, I guess it's actually part of why there had to be this process of reducing the identity of the populace within the Imperial Corps to consumers. Yeah. Because it's the identity with the least political valence that could possibly exist. A hundred percent. I, I agree with that 100%. And I don't think that it was a conspiracy by like shadowy actors. But, but, but again, this is what, this is what the, when we talk about the commodity form, right? We, we mean the form of appearance that social labor takes in capitalism. And so that what emerges from that is that uh, in a world of commodities, people are going to interact with each other in a commodified fashion. And therefore, then, any any political valence as a consumer is impossible, but being a consumer is the most uh, capitalistic thing you could possibly be because the consumer, unless they're like a highfalutin luxury consumer, doesn't care where something is made, doesn't under, doesn't care about what conditions it's it's made under, doesn't care about the workers, doesn't even think about the workers that uh, that actually made the thing that they're buying. Uh, instead, it's a it's a it's basically a solipsistic act. It's one that has to be done, of course. I'm not anti-consumer, but like this vision of, of, of being a consumer and consumerism is a very bankrupt and dangerous view, honestly, of how the world works because the deep um, socialized interconnectedness of human beings, which is materially true in the world. It's like we're all connected through these, these webs of commodities through our socialized labor. Um, that gets completely obliterated. Right. There's no way we can see the dense webs of interaction that can, that created this world that we're in right now. And therefore, we can't see each other. We can't recognize each other as fellow workers. We can only really recognize ourselves as commodity consumers at that point in time. So I think that this this distortion that we're talking about is just deeply embedded within the laws of motion of capital. I, I think that, like, at this point, you're you're seeing almost like the end stage of a process of development of the of the consumer to where like there there's no meaning because it doesn't have to be yeah i think it's important to point out that this isn't some conspiratorial notion that this was done with malicious intent or even intent at all it was rather just this culmination of rational algorithmic processes of capital which logically culminated in our current situation i think you end up with a lot of people with these kind of like crank ideas which all tend to be either these technocratic solutions to attempting to fix the problems brought about by this mechanistic causality of capital or on the other hand you get these conspiratorial fantasies like oh we just got to get rid of the cabal or whatever and i think both of these are fundamentally missing the mechanisms of power through finance capital and things like that that are actually causing and reproducing these crises and issues yeah, yeah. You you said something interesting before when you were talking about um, <clears throat> state capacity. You were talking about the capacity of the state to actually like get shit done, and it's fascinating because state capacity. What we didn't even realize that the state was so impotent that the state was so um, like kind of rotted away from the inside until um, COVID happened. 
but that process has been going on for 40 or 50 years. And that lack of state capacity is literally what the conservative political project's all about. And it's only really bringing America back to the place that it was before the 1930s, when there was local and state power and the federal government had very little, you know, to do with life and the economy and politics outside of that. So like this vision of America as like federally a very, a very weak government, right, is, is actually the vision that's been pursued. Not just by Republicans, of course, but also by uh, Democrats since Bill Clinton. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd actually say probably like you know even Jimmy you know, Carter or Bill Clinton. Yeah, like <laughs> I'd say Jimmy Carter even yeah. honestly, Me too. because like because I mean like I guess you could point to COVID as this like parting of the curtains, but when was the last time we actually saw the U.S. government actually do something? Uh, the Iraq war, that didn't go very well. That was a big bungle. <laughs> yeah. And then speaking of bungles, there was a uh, bungler and the response to the 2008 financial crash, which simply doubled down, doubled down on the same economy that we had had that brought us to that crisis. Didn't bail out the homeowners as they were supposed to just bailed out the banks. I mean, what an utter disaster for this, for the country, man. And for the economy, like a reckoning was going to come with or without COVID. Yeah, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that, like, it took this long for people to realize, like, just how utterly, like, bankrupt our, like, governmental system was and, like, just how hollowed out of, like, any sort of capacity it is. Because, I mean, yeah, you look at, like, Obama, like, I think everyone, like, sort of, like, ascribes kind of a maliciousness to, like, Obama's failure mm. to do something. But I think that that was also in part just due to the fact that the government has really been, like, just kind of hollowed out and, like, sold to, like, all these, like, public-private partnerships. Yeah, and, and what, what levers Obama could use, of course, they did the massive TARP bailout, and there was, like, another one under under Obama. But the number one mechanism they really had was using the um, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department, you know, buying, yeah. buying bonds and shit, which is, like, one of the, the last um, powers that uh, the federal government has is monetary policy. And that's such a small sphere, you know, of of politics. But that's like kind of this fortress, this citadel around which American power um, uh, applies itself. And, you know, that this is, of course, partially because of dollar hegemony around the world and global reserve currency and all that shit. But, yeah, the, 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 the state is very much circumscribed these days. And it's shocking. And it it makes sense that like, you know, monetary policy is basically the only lever of power they have left because essentially it's like the only way in which they can leverage power over like this now international sort of uh, form of capitalism broadly because like mm. essentially the dollar is this universal like medium of value that capitalism still uses and that's like really the only thing that the U.S. can touch about like these yeah. companies because other than that, like all these companies are bigger than the government like the government does nothing compared to them. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because, um, you know, from the 1930s until like the 1970s and 1980s, you know, this is a very like shallow way to look at it, but in some ways it's really real. You know, the government had more power than it ever had to regulate economic activity. And again, the, the recession, that receding into the background, brings us to the state of affairs that the United States had in the 19th century and classical liberalism in Europe. So we're really, you know, the progressive vision of what the future is going to like, look like really gets um, <clears throat> really is really damaged by how like 
non-teleological this whole process has been. Instead of seeing like the moral arc of the universe bend towards justice, instead it seems like we had this rising tide of like relative prosperity and equality by the 1960s or 70s that starts to decline. And now we're back to the 19th century, baby. Because essentially where we're at now, we've got this handful of competing like neo empires that aren't bound by a nation. You've got like Amazon, Walmart, and all these corporations. And honestly, it's not even really just these individual corporations. It's these massive conglomerates that all exist outside of the scope of a nation or any other body that would ostensibly attempt to regulate them. And yes, so is it any wonder then that uh, in this in this kind of world that um, all of social life just ends up resolving back down to commodities and commodifications? I mean, this is really we're talking about the power of capital to shape our lives as individuals and as as, as workers. And this kind of gets to one of my last interesting points to bring up about Jameson, which is this kind of breaking down of temporality, which. And I think this is actually kind of an interesting mirror to Fukuyama's bullshit, like, end of history. Mm. Because it's not an end of history. Like, things continue to break down and continue to get worse. Like, history is very much happening, but we cease to really be able to reckon with history outside of these, like, moments in time, which just exist as these, like, little commodified fragments. Mm. We're in the eternal present now. We're in capitalist realism. Time... Time has no meaning any longer. There's time passes, but it's the time of work and leisure and weekends and weekdays. But in terms of like a historical movement, there's these series of blips like 9-11 or 2008 or the COVID disaster, Trump being elected, whatever. And there's there's really no no temporal glue that holds the, this history together. That certainly feels like the world that we're in right now. Yeah, I mean, like, look, look no further than like how George Bush has been like George W. Bush has been re- right. totally rehabilitated. After, totally the, rehabilitated. after the Iraq war, it's because like, well, now people like go back and like look at that time and they're like, oh, well, I thought things back then were better then than they are now. So like yep. all of a sudden, all of these characters affiliated with then, well, I mean, no matter how evil they are, they can't be worse than the ones we have now, which is why I think like we're going to just like continue to like see like all these people be like, oh, well, this was actually the worst president ever. I mean, like, (laughs) it's honestly kind of funny, like the bizarre mirror image that you have between Obama and Trump and now and now even like Biden, like Mm. all three of these presidents have these sizable chunks of the populace that think they're like either the pinnacle of evil and then like there's this other chunk that thinks that they're like these grand paragons of virtue and it's funny because like kind of i think the illusion around obama broke for like a couple years but now it's back in full swing oh yeah it's back baby the adults are back in charge biden's back and we have like um a steady hand on the tiller just like obama yeah and like i think that's the thing is i think for a couple years toward the end of obama's administration but before trump it was starting to break through that like Obama wasn't really that great, but the moment Trump became the president, that all went out the window, and Obama became, like, this perfect president, and Trump became, like, this grand, evil fascist, and everyone's like, well, George W. Bush, at least he's not Trump, and it's like, (laughs) oh, you've completely forgotten about George W. Bush. Bush is arguably, and I would actually argue this myself, a much more dangerous and deadly and violent ruthless vicious presidency than uh than trump's 
I mean, I think just by body count alone. Yeah, like I, I would, I would one hundred percent agree with that. Like I'd say that you know you point to W. Bush and like Trump. I think a lot of Trump's illest effects come down to essentially just incompetence and narcissism. Right. Right. And an inefficiency to like, you know, actually like manage what he was put in charge of to the extent to which it's like possible. George W. Bush was actively like pursuing a very evil agenda that like, I don't think Mm. Trump really was. I think Trump was just, you know, a narcissist fundamentally. Oh, for sure. Uh, The temporality thing is interesting because it's not just about, I feel like our experiences of history, but it's also that postmodern uh, and I think this is still with us, the, the, the kind of postmodern um, pastiche yeah, uh, and lack of, of timeliness of like cultural production. Like if you look at uh, if you watch that Wonder Woman movie, which unfortunately I did oh, just because I was bored. I, I, have, I takes, haven't watched a superhero movie since Black Panther. I, I don't know why I even tried. <laughs> I got about halfway through and I gave up. But it's fascinating because you're talking about a lack of temporality. Like this film was referencing events that had happened during World War One, I, I guess, in like a previous um, episode. And then it's taking place in the 1980s and we're watching it in the 2020s. And yet there's no there-ness. There's no like, like time. It doesn't feel – having it be in the 1980s doesn't do anything. It doesn't set it in any historical moment. All it does is show us a people wearing a series of different outfits and listening to different musics, right? So the 80s is only brought up as this pastiche, this like signifier of a time and place in order to like show that what things were vaguely different back then. And we see this shit all the time. Yeah. You know, history is like dead and you have all these references to different eras in history, but they're just thrown together without any grander meaning. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, you see this all the time where you see this constant plumbing of this big idea of pastness or whatever. And it's not actually like trying to represent anything historical about the time. There's not any actual historical reference. It's just trying to allude to this vague feeling of a time. I mean, I, I tend to like, again, lay this at the feet of um, of commodity production as well, you know, in addition to consumption, because it is like the commodity production of like these conceptions of time, essentially. There are these terms. There's there's a term uh, formal and real subsumption that Marx uses in like a unpublished chapter of Capital that only got published like maybe 40, 50 years ago. And subsumption is the process of capital um, bringing into itself a particular social process, like a work process. So if you have formal subsumption, you have a bunch of us, you know, having been like individual artisans or petty producers, formally independent, bringing us with the same work process under the same roof and having us do our work. And there's real subsumption where people are brought under the same roof, but the work process radically changes, becomes far more automated and socialized. I think something very similar is happening in the rest of capitalist society, which is that up until even the 1950s or 1960s, the, uh, what do you call it, the civic sphere, right, Uh, civil society and culture had not yet been completely subsumed into like the dull, endless present of capitalist modernity or post-modernity. And now because 
everything's moving so fast. Commodities are being produced, bought, consumed, and, and disregarded so quickly. There's no space anymore for time. There's no space anymore for history. And so it's this great speeding up and velocity of life combined with this deepening commodification of everything we have from our relationships to our families and obviously to our work and certainly our consumption that I think is really sucking any meaning out of everything. And that's what, that's what I get from, from this conversation talking about uh, postmodernism and commodification. It's that this, like, it's like a deeply imminent process uh, to capitalist development. And we're in a stage right now where like, if we don't break out of capitalist development, there will be no meaning necessarily, neither in the cultural sphere nor in the political sphere. Exactly. It just all kind of breaks down. It's the acids of modernity, as it's called. And this process is very much fundamentally linked to this process of capital production, because, you know, capital production needs to continue to ramp and ramp and ramp itself up just to combat the declining rate of profit that Mm -hmm. Marx lays out. So it's not like these things are going to decommodify all by themselves. Mm -mm. Like, it's very much something that is intrinsic to the capital mode of production. And ultimately, like, um, when we talk about decommodification... I mean, ultimately, what we want to decommodify is ourselves, right? Because we are that ultimate commodity that that bring that gives value to other commodities. And so many of these problems with looking at politics as a transaction or understanding ourselves as consumers is because we're truly alienated from the way that we all, as working people, are socialized. We're all in this, we're all building this economy together, but because we're all individual wage laborers, because our our wage labor is a commodity, we have no intrinsic connection to one another as workers. So really the whole point is to not just decommodify aspects of human life but decommodify ourselves no longer be seen by others and and ourselves and certainly by the uh, the bosses as like atomistic uh value producing uh, economizing actors who work for eight hours a day and then consume for eight hours a day and sleep for eight hours a day i mean that's a vision of social life that we're given you know under certainly at this late date under capitalism but it's a very starkly i don't know dark vision of what it is to be a human, to be a commodity like that. And that's what we, we need to fight against in all the in any way that we can. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's a, as good a place as any to end it. Oh, cool. Well, it was great being with you. I thought maybe it would uh, it would be good to end it out on a note of um, go, go, rah, rah. I mean, yeah, fight. absolutely. Like, the, the, the capitalist mode of production <laughs> must be destroyed. Um, yes, and, exactly uh, right. <laughs> we, we, we must destroy the capital form, and that... As far as like, you know, organizing while also being alienated and commodified, uh, that's a that's a tricky proposition, but it's a tall order. But uh, I feel like a reckoning is coming soon. So like we may be forced into that position one way or the other. Like that's like the thing that I've noticed is like right now, like where we're at, like we are definitely seeing greater spikes of energy among like the proletariat at large. Oh, yeah. Than we've ever seen like in my lifetime anyway not in mine either yeah and uh like that definitely has to mean something and like really the only difference between energy and power is that energy being harnessed hell yeah and at some point even without necessarily you know some organized like guiding principle like i think all that energy has to go somewhere and it will hopefully organize along some lines we just need to you know, try to like guide that toward, you know, a positive conception rather than, you know, 
A fascist one. <laughs> uh, uh, an actual, like, you know, yeah. fascist conception, which, I mean... So, so we want a communist conception, not a fascist yes. one. That's what yes, that, 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 that would be that. ideal. And that wraps it up. Thank you so much to Sean KB for coming on. Uh, I definitely recommend checking out his podcast, uh, which is the Antifada. It's a great podcast that you should definitely be listening to. Uh, and I know that they also stream on Twitch sometimes, so definitely check them out. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ice9Ocean. And if you'd like to support the show, I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash breaking the lathe. Um, I'm still getting the hang of this whole podcasting thing, so it'll just be a single episode each week for the first couple weeks. But once I get in the swing of things, I plan on releasing two a week, uh, one for free and one on Patreon. I hope to, you know, continue to have great guests like Sean on, um, and I hope to continue to have sort of these conversations where we're talking a bit about, like, theory and stuff, but in a way that's not overly, you know, dense or, you know, gets you too lost in the weeds. So, yeah, I guess give me some feedback on that. Let me know what you thought of the episode on Twitter. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Bye!